Hello and welcome back to another episode of Innovation Matters. I am your host, Anthony Schiavo. I'm joined by Kartik Sobramian, Mike Coleman. Uh, Innovation Matters is the innovation podcast brought to you by Lux Research Incorporated. And we have a guest joining us today. It is Lux Research's very own Chief Product Officer, Ari Van Berkel, Dr. Van Berkel, one of the most Van Berkel people I know. Um, you may have heard him join us on the podcast uh, a couple months ago to talk about hydrogen hubs in the U.S. And, and he's back, back to share his thoughts about you know, the future of innovation, what 2024 has in store for us more generally. And I think this is important because um, we gave our own predictions on trends and technologies, but one of the big things that we think is, is coming up is how innovation itself will change and the, the nature of it, uh, the, the risks people can take, the activities people will be doing, all that is going to be undergoing significant transition here in, in 2024. So yeah, uh, Ari, how you doing? I'm doing great. Thank you. It's good to be here in 2024. Mm-hmm. So everyone whom I haven't talked to, Happy New Year. It's yeah. going to be an interesting year, I think. But we'll, we'll get to that in a moment. Yeah. I just finished my bagel. There's a little long-running point of contention uh, between myself and Dr. Van Perkel over bagels. Um, <laughs> what exactly is your objection with them again? I, I forget. I think the only thing they've got going for them is that they have a hole in it. So that the form factor is the only interesting thing that's about just, them. That's the, just not the, true. the topology is, is really on point. The Taurus is... First of all, <laughs> beyond the fact that, that the topology, like Mike said, is valuable in and of itself, that's just not true. There's a lot happening with, you know, their, their the way they're made. They've got the they've got the syrup in them. They're a little sweet. They're boiled. You know, they've got the thick skin. They're very chewy. It's a very unique whole eating experience there. I think that's kind of sums up innovation for 2024, right? Unique is nice, <laughs> but it doesn't pay the bills. Right. It has to actually work. And in this case, I expect it to be food, which is, is food. Uh, doubtful. It is food. All right. But maybe innovation in 2024 will have a hole in its middle, uh, a, a beating a hole in its beating heart. And and that's kind of one of the things um, that we want to talk about. What, what is going to be missing from 2024 innovation? But I, sorry, I'll, I'll kick it to, to ask you an actual question about, you know, your job or whatever. What are you expecting on the on the highest level? You know, what's your big picture outlook on, on 2024? Where are things headed this year? Yeah, so to, to answer that question, let me take you back to the 1990s, uh, mm. which is when I started to get involved for the first time in, in innovation and R&D and programming R&D and things like that. Mm-hmm. Also when I was born. Well, uh, yeah, rub it in. Um, so <laughs> back then, Innovation was a lot about uh, optimization. We were just getting out of the big recession of the 1980s. And really, innovation was about making the most of existing assets. And uh, innovation was mostly integrated with business units. So there was precious little corporate innovation, except for the really big corporations. And most innovation was happening in kind of a troubleshooting way, uh, kind of a Six Sigma way in in business units and that changed towards the end of the 1990s when um, the internet bubble uh, appeared and burst and people realized that this thing called disruption could happen 
So we've, we went through probably about 10 years of companies trying to come to terms with disruption. And then we went through about 10 years of companies trying to benefit from the startup phenomenon and from the fact that uh, open innovation could be a much more effective way uh, to, to spending their, their money on research and on innovation. And I think that pendulum is now swinging back. And there's a couple of reasons for that. Maybe we, we, we will get into that. But what, what you should be watching out for this year is innovation getting much more down to earth, much more focused on the middle of the innovation funnel. It, it's going to be about getting things done, um, launching concrete projects and showing value to the business in the medium term rather than in the long term. Um, however, having said that, What's interesting about today is that while the pendulum swings back to showing shorter term results and being a bit more down to earth and a bit more, a bit less uh, science fiction and a bit more tied to existing assets, while all of that is happening, we still have the two big transitions happening in the background that will truly hit most of the industry, uh, any industry in, uh, after 1930. So it's about delivering today with existing assets while protecting um, your ability to maneuver as a company post-1930. Post-1930? 2030. 2030, sorry. I'm, I'm st- Dang, you are old. Holy cow. <laughs> I'm still in the 1930s. Um, in the, in the 20th century. But, well, yeah. I mean, it's an apt, honestly, it's an apt comparison because like a lot of these industrial processes haven't really changed since 1930. You look at Haber-Bosch, you look at Ammonia, we had a uh, Copernic Catalyst on last week. And uh, that's a, that's basically the same process from 1930 to now. Um, well, that, that's another interesting thing, right? So there's a lot of uh, process development, particularly in the chemical industry that got interrupted by uh, the automotive industry. Mm. So we had Haber-Bosch, we, we've got Fischer-Tropsch, uh, all of those things, they were based on the premise that we are using coal. Haber-Bosch maybe less so, but even, even Haber-Bosch started with gasifying coal to get to, to get to the hydrogen. And then the whole oil thing happened. Uh, so there's a lot of stuff that happened in the 1920s and 1930s that uh, we may, after a long interruption, get back to and try to continue that that line of development. So a different branch of research. I want to back up before we get into some of the, the focus around, you know, you, you mentioned moving into more the middle of the innovation funnel. Can we talk a little bit about open innovation? Because I think people have this idea of open innovation, which is like, it's working with people outside your company or whatever. Like there's good ideas outside your company and you need to work with them. But I think in practice, in corporate practice, it's actually more specific. It kind of represents a pretty specific set of activities. And, and, and it's really early stage startup scouting, early stage startup venturing, and also academic, early stage academic work. So I guess, how do you define what open innovation really is and what specifically goes into it? And I ask this because I want to understand what role those approaches are going to have in the next you know, couple right. of years as this pendulum is, is swinging back. Open innovation, uh, of course, has, has, a, has a very formal definition and you, and you can look it up and all that. But I think 
For today's discussion, it's important to, dis to differentiate between open innovation and shared innovation. Mm. So when we were setting up the first uh, open innovation clusters in the Netherlands, we're talking 2006, 2007 now. The one question we got from companies when we were trying to persuade them to join the cluster and to invest in the cluster, right, spend money, uh, the one question we got is, what's the multiplier? So the business case was simply, I go back to my board and I explain to my board, if we put a million dollars into this cluster, then we get $10 million worth of R&D uh, in return we get access to $10 million of worth of R&D. So the multiplier is 10. Even though that's not the formal definition of open innovation, I think in many cases, open innovation is regarded, is used as a lever. It helps you to get more, uh, to, to do more interesting and exciting and risky stuff because you're pooling money with many others. And in, in, in many cases with startups, with people not even from your industry, with venture capital, for example. And that allows you to do to try more, which is why it's good for the early stage, at a lower uh, expenditure. So you, you reduce the risk and you get to see more different experiments, essentially. Shared innovation is very different. Shared innovation is something that, for example, the, the semicon industry excels at. Uh, shared innovation is a, is a joint roadmap where you team up with your value chain to create the, a desired innovation for the entire value chain. So this is how you make Moore's law happen, for example. Right? You team up with everyone because you know you need better equipment to produce the next generation of semiconductors because everything is going to be smaller. You need that new equipment developed. It's a huge development risk. But if, if you share the entire innovation within the value chain, and, and then you get innovation clusters around the likes of IMAC in Belgium, for example. And those kind of shared innovations also reduce risk, but they reduce market risk. They don't reduce expenditure. They reduce the risk of introducing your product. But hmm. that kind of innovation is very difficult to achieve because the prerequisite is that you agree on the roadmap. And trust me, you can, you can spend years talking about a roadmap before agreeing on it. One of the things, because we've talked about you know, I wrote a paper uh, some years ago comparing the use of digital tools in the pharmaceutical industry, which is, I think, also an industry that does this kind of shared innovation. And I compared that to the chemicals industry. And I, I basically asked the question, why doesn't the chemicals industry do this type of collaborative innovation on certain challenging problems? Like, for example, coming up with a, a corrosion model that can predict the long-term corrosion performance of, of uh, coatings, right? And one of the things I just got to, the answers I got to, was just that R&D spending occupies a much smaller share of, you know, the total expenditures, right? It's it's relatively feasible to, to just do your own R&D, right? Uh, it's 2 or 3% of revenues, right? Whereas in pharma, you know, that yep. type of R&D expenditure is way, way higher, you know, 30, 40, 50%, 60% for some, some companies, right? That's overwhelmingly what they're doing. And the cost of bringing a product to market is overwhelmingly in that R&D sector. So it makes, you know, sense to to reduce those costs. I think that's one that's one element. There's another element for the chemical industry, which is they they used to, I think it's, it's changing a little bit, but they used to adhere to a, a completely different paradigm, a paradigm that doesn't lend itself to shared innovation. And the paradigm was, we'll produce bulk chemicals or bulk plastics mm. to be used in any and all applications, right? So we, we develop a new material once, 
and it gets used in so many places that we can afford to scale it up really quickly. But of course, if you're injecting your products, as it were, in every value chain, then shared innovation becomes really difficult because that implies that you then have a, a shared roadmap with every value chain. So if if that's your paradigm, you're on mm. your own. You, you you cannot you just cannot get it organized. Well, then I mean I guess the context are we going to see a, a shift to more of the shared innovation model in you know energy or chemicals or industrials you know in these sectors, especially something like steel. You know where on the one hand steel goes into everything, right? Um, on the other, it, it seems like it's a fit for, and we already see some of these these shared innovation models happening. Some of the like Norsk Hydro, you know, hybrid type, large, these are large scale consortium projects that happen, you know, among the steel makers with these long term time frames. So, how, how are you seeing this type of model? You know, is this type of model going to come to these these companies? What's going to change to make that happen, or, or not? So I hope it does because it's it's much needed to accelerate for both uh, the transition to a circular economy and the transition to a to a net zero net zero carbon emission economy. Um, it takes, based on my experience, it takes between five and and eight years to set up successful shared innovation, right? So it takes a long run to to do it, and that's again because you need to agree on a roadmap and all that. And you, and in this particular case, you need to get parties that don't usually co uh, collaborate uh, together. So you you need to build the networks, you need to build the trust in the network, and all that. It might go faster because there's there's a government pushing for it now. Which which tends to accelerate things. Yeah, I mean, in the in the semiconductor industry, it sort of worked or worked for 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 a while with ITRS in particular because Intel just told everybody what to do. Exactly. If you have a, and maybe the government plays that role, but it's, it's yeah. If you if you have one dominant player, it it also helps. Yeah, but that's not quite the case in materials or uh, or energy. So I I think it will take between eight and and five and eight years. Which neatly aligns to that 19, uh, sorry, it keeps saying 19, that 2030 deadline, right? But isn't the 2030 deadline more for like getting things done as opposed to like setting up our long term R&D program? Well, I mean, what kind of technologies do you think are going to be developed by this type of approach? So I think you're right. Uh, ideally, there should be less shared innovation still waiting to happen by 2030. And, and more already on the shelf, ready to scale. But I just don't really see that uh, on, in, in the cards right now. Uh, I think open innovation will diminish uh, because of the financial, the, the economic situation. And it will take a while for shared innovation to ramp up, uh, depending on government action. So the, the EU's ambition, for example, to provide 40% of raw materials uh, from not from import, right? From from its own area, uh, that could really accelerate things because that would uh, create that that one powerful player. In this case, the European Commission that would uh, gather all the parties around the table and create one incentive for all the parties to collaborate. Maybe uh, uh, you know a slightly tangential and off topic, but I was just thinking about the pendulum swinging back. And it just got me wondering, you know, we have had several discussions about nuclear fusion, how we like or don't like nuclear fusion and what are the challenges and things like that. So very, very 
long term focus projects uh do you think this pendulum is also swinging back maybe because confidence in long term innovation is low maybe i'm thinking about this incorrectly but what got me thinking was i think there's this realization that oh we need to get things done right now so that we have a platform to do something better in the future so let's just focus on whatever works right now and you know not think about those kind of things i don't think confidence in long term innovation is low but i do think uh companies now have to work harder to earn their innovation budget so the budget is low and uh the priority should be growing the company first or growing revenue uh so that you get to spend a little bit more on on innovation so it's there's a there's a drive towards shorter term um in and, and for example a fusion is a good example because we saw massive amounts of venture capital going to fusion i think that will be much harder to accomplish in the current economic conditions with with a higher interest rate uh, right if if you're getting minus 1% interest on the, on your bank accounts you might as well try and do something world changing with your money and 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 maybe get like a 1 million times multiplier on your money right but if if you're getting a decent 4 or 5% you might still want to get a 1 million times multiplier but you might also be tempted to just stick to your money in in the bank account and and watch it grow so it's getting harder and and we saw that there's a working paper by the university of chicago so this is not yet peer reviewed but it's a working paper uh, that got published uh, i think about a month ago uh an econometrist uh, analysis that showed that for every 1% point increase in interest rate there's a drop uh of about 30% in um vc funding so if you compound that uh we're looking at a drop of about between 60 and 70% depending on where you are in vc funding and it tracks and, and that's that's happening over the course of 3 years according to the study that tracks pretty well with what we're seeing out there right now so startup funding is getting i wouldn't say scarce because in reality we're back to say 2017 levels so still plenty of startup funding but it's definitely a lot less than 2 years ago yeah i, I want to talk a little bit about the venture capital side and the startup funding side i think that's important there's an interesting report um from ctvc maybe i'll even drop the link in the the description of this podcast i don't know um basically looking at at climate tech uh funding right and vc funding for in general and one of the things they highlighted first of all vc funding in 2023 down 30% from 2022 so remains to be seen you know if we get to that 60 to 70 uh point you know there's obviously some sort of lagging there's lagging effects i don't think you'd expect to see that that dec- that total decline as quickly right as uh 6 months but um what's interesting ari is that deal size was down a lot you know 30 to 40% uh deal count was only down about 3% so it seems like roughly the same number of of startups are getting funded right but later stage activity so basically startups getting these 
large CD, even sometimes Series E rounds, you know, hundreds of millions of dollars, 200 million dollars, pushing them, you know, into that almost, you know, mid-sized company, large company, in some cases operating privately range. It seems like that type of capital has really been the hardest hit. And so I'm curious as to how you think that sort of impacts the overall you know, space going forward and, and uh, what that means for the corporate players. Because as you kind of talked about, the role of a VC or the role of open innovation is to provide this large multiplier. You know, it, it can be very cheap. If you're a corporate venture capital, you put in a million dollars or a couple of million dollars in, a, in an early stage round, you're a minority investor and you get access to a, a theoretically a very valuable startup. You know, it's high risk, but if it works, it works. And you've, you've gotten a huge multiplier on your money because you benefit from this company existing. It, but it seems like that part is, is maybe not being affected as much. You know, that part is maybe still operating. And it's really the, the sort of like the, the mega startup rounds that are going away. So how do those mega startup rounds fit in your framework? And what does it mean that companies aren't going to be able to raise $200 million on, on private markets? How, how are you thinking about this? So it means that it puts corporations in a better position, actually, right? I think uh, corporate R&D, or uh, it may turn out to be more uh, R&D tied to the business unit or RD&I tied to the business unit, is in a more in a position of power today than it was two or five years ago. Uh, because the, the likelihood of getting disrupted by a startup is less because it's not getting the mega rounds. And at the same time, it, it's slightly easier now, even though budgets are down a little bit, but not nearly as much as VC budgets. But budgets are down a little bit, but it's getting easier to argue for uh, some risky uh, investments, some scale-ups, right? Because innovation has to deliver. So let's focus on a couple of bigger projects uh, that can actually deliver revenue in, in the near term. And at the same time, the reward for taking risk in the general economy is lower than it was before. Right? Again, before, if the risk-free interest rate is something like minus 1% and your company return on investment is something like 8%, then uh, the reward for taking risk is 9% more return. Um, now, if the risk-free interest rate is about 3%, Company returns are not growing like crazy. They're still about 8%. We're talking about the oil industry. Uh, well, oil industry is a bad example. It, it probably has climbed like crazy in the, in the past year. But most companies are still at a similar return on investment. So the difference between risk-free and investing in a company, the reward for taking risk is a bit lower, which means that it gets easier to defend risky projects within a company as well. Right. You can be satisfied with pitching a little bit less return on investment, but still a good project. R&D in companies is in a better position compared to startups now. And startups will need to work more with companies to scale their business because that's the only way they can get the kind of money they need to build larger production facilities, for example. So we'll, 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 need, we'll probably see more joint ventures or um, acquisitions maybe of uh, startup companies, which is more affordable 
for large corporations now, and which is required for the startups to uh, to really scale their manufacturing ca uh, capacity. It, it gets harder for them to scale independently. Yeah, so I was kind of interested as as we're you know sort of getting into talking about that that question of near term wins. Like it's a little bit of a different. Um, you know, there is this question around sort of where the next generation of innovation is going to, to come from and, and these shared innovation uh, opportunities that are hopefully going to get set up over the next sort of five to eight years. And I think that is, you know, that is kind of analogous to like the pharmaceutical industry model where a lot of that shared innovation is basically kind of on pre-competitive stuff. But there's also, I think, the need for, I mean, especially given how pressing the targets are around the client, around climate and around circular economy, uh, there's the need to, to, to deploy and, and uh, today, as, as you've been explaining. And, and that also has to be collaborative, too, in, in, a lot of, in a lot of these areas, right? You have to, we saw it with the hydrogen hubs we talked about with you, you a few months ago, right? It's not, it's, it's kind of hard for, uh, you know, ExxonMobil or for, uh, you know, for, for Dow Chemical or for, you know, uh, Dominion Energy or whomever uh, to, to go out and do one of these, you know, to do these sort of transformations on their own, right? The, the deployment is, is because it's, it's a system transition, um, the deployment uh, is going to involve, I think, a lot more collaboration and a lot more cross-industry um partnerships and, 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 and relationships, I think, than just, you know, launching the next generation of uh, your, your conventional product will. So how do you think about, um, it, you know, is, is that a similar model, you know, kind of as with the hydrogen hubs we talked about, there's, there, there kind of is an innovation element and a, and a deployment element to these, or there, uh, the, or do the relations do, in, in many of these cases, the, the partnerships that are formed on the deployment side, you know, look differently and are, are sort of based differently than these these shared innovation centers? Yeah, I think uh, so. It is uh, another form of shared innovation, if you like. Uh, you could also call it standard setting, right? So that we'll, we'll also be entering into an era where good old boring negotiation about standards uh, is going to probably become really important. So that that's another angle uh, that you need to be mindful of when we're talking about hydrogen when we're talking about um, recycling how, how do you know what's going what, what the feedstock of your recycling plant is you probably need uh, some sort of standard defined there so uh, i could very well see uh, an, an american association of the recycling industry emerge setting uh, standards uh, to to uh, characterize the um, the quality of waste streams or the content of waste streams uh, with a mind to certain, let's say, paralysis or gas fire type installations. So that's one way to create, to, to align the value chain. Uh, another way to align the value chain, I think, will hugely be uh, government orchestrated, really is to make sure that decisions along the value chain are taken uh, in uh, a reasonable order. So if, if you're starting to produce a lot of hydrogen, someone else should also invest in something that uses a lot of hydrogen. And I think that kind of coordination will likely happen through government intervention. What does this mean for the people, right? Like, I, we've had this ecosystem 
which has built up over the last decade, which I think funnels a lot of people into startups, right? You know, you look at MIT as an institution, they do a lot of work with corporations, right? They do a lot of work, you know, sort of direct tech transfer, but obviously they have a very, very strong startup ecosystem. And in America, that's, you know, there's this, there's this big focus culturally as well as sort of structurally in a lot of ways on startups. And so I guess I'm just curious, you know, both for the the people on the corporate side, you know, for whom open innovation, they need to figure out to shift that more towards the shared innovation model, as well as for the individuals, you know, in the ecosystems, um, in academia or in the startup ecosystem, you know, what is this, what does this mean? Um, especially, especially in the context of sustainable technologies, right? Because, you know, are we going to have these MIT tech transfer offices, not to single them out, they do a great job, but like, are they going to be pushing people to found startups when they should be doing something else? Like, what's what's going to happen over the next couple of years with the, the individuals there and, and what should they be doing? There's one other aspect there, which is uh, startups have also always been uh, a method to manage your portfolio. So if, 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 you, if you have a set of, one good example is uh, Shell, for example, uh, let people retire with a couple of patents in their backpack. So essentially, they gave the technology that they could no longer use uh, a chance to still scale by sending it out of the company uh, with a couple of experienced people uh, who could try and, and make something uh, out of it again. So that's how some of the startups got created. And it's been a relatively uh, well-used tool for uh, companies to, to manage their portfolio in, of, of skills and competences and IP uh, in their RD&I uh, departments. So one thing that might happen, uh, I think it's too early to say, but one thing that might happen is in the course of portfolio management, there might be a bigger demand for young professionals fresh out of university by corporate R&D because they, corporate R&D needs different skill sets. They need electrochemists, for example, rather than petrochemists. And at the same time, uh, relatively experienced people uh, will get uh, the, the, the final track in their career will be um, working on their favorite innovation in an independent fashion, uh, being well taken care of by a retirement plan and getting pushed out and trying stuff over there, which is a, a very different type of startup. Um, so that could be a shift. I'm, I'm not too sure if, if that's likely to occur, but I've seen it happen before. So uh, yeah, watch out for that and, and let's see what happens. And then of course, there's a big wave of retirements happening at, at companies anyway. So I'm, I'm not too worried about fresh graduates from universities. They'll, they'll, they'll find plenty of seats to fill in, uh, in both corporations and startups. Um, so when, uh, sort of the last thing I was interested to ask about, Ari, is, and, you know, since you keep trying to take us back to the, to the 1930s, um, I, I, let's, uh, let's, let's run with it and look at, um, because and I think it's, I think it's apt because, you know, the 1930s was kind of when around when in the U.S. and I think following that globally, we saw the first really big 
um, increases in, in in productivity and really big, you know, sort of as Anthony was alluding to, was around that time, a lot of these big transformations of, you know, the oil industry coming into its own, uh, you know, automotive industry along, along with that electrification uh, and mechanization of a lot of industrial processes, right? And it drove this, this big... Uh, um, big increase in in productivity and growth through the sort of the middle part of the of the 20th century which which has not been you know sustained since you know the 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 1980s or or so um what is this what are these these transitions going to to mean for sort of the overall overall economic growth and opportunity, right? And I'm, I'm thinking of this because we just saw, you know, shared in the Lux Slack uh, the other day uh, from one of our colleagues, this paper from Goldman Sachs, which is arguing that climate as well as AI is driving this into, into the beginning of a new, of a new super cycle, which is going to, is going to drive that, that sort of growth and productivity that uh, maybe we saw coming out of the, you know, maybe to the degree that we haven't seen since, since the middle of the 20th century. Well, what do you see that sort of meaning for the macroeconomic outlook, these these big transitions? Yeah. So I can see that for AI because AI, I think, has the potential to drive uh, productivity once again. The energy and materials transition, um, I think energy is just is is a chore that has to be done, right? We, we figured out that we put the energy... Um, the whole energy system on a somewhat inconvenient basis uh, and we need to uh, to redo it essentially uh, uh, unless we we prefer really warm summers so uh, and winters right i haven't been able to skate for uh, at least five years over here in the netherlands on on uh, on ice on the on the canals um changing that will make maybe make energy slightly cheaper but that's yet to be seen um but it will prevent a lot of damage from climate change. So it's it's profitable, but it's profitable in the uh, loss avoidance sense, which which doesn't grow the economy. It just prevents shrinking of the economy. AI can boost productivity, and I think the other really interesting thing to watch is the circular economy because it can boost uh, material productivity. And I think that's another limiting factor that that is. Today, not quite as limiting as labor productivity, because we can see that there's a labor shortage nearly everywhere in, in every developed economy. But it's, it is a real limit, um, and people worry about it. Right? People make calculations saying, oh, if every car starts to become electric, uh, how much lithium is needed, and do we actually have it? So I think uh, for the circular economy, really keeping track of material productivity uh, the amount of money you make by circulating an ounce of material or whatever your preferred unit is, uh, that's really something to watch. And that, that is uh, more so than in the 1930s, is a real limit at this point uh, in the economy in, in certain cases. Unless we go and get some material from the moon, of course, which is another topic, another you, you can circulate ounces of other materials and make a lot of money if you want. But um, I think that's not what a lot of these companies are going to be moving into, except for maybe some of the pharma players um, or some of the tobacco players. But uh, but look, I think that's about all we have time for. Ari, I just want to thank you for, for coming on again, for sharing your thoughts, 
you know, it's great to check back in with you. Uh, and I'm sure we'll do it again in, in another couple of months. So cheers. Thanks for having me. I'll, I'll gladly share a bagel with you if, uh, if I have to, to, uh, to get on the podcast here. <laughs> yeah. You have to come to America to do that because honestly, I've been to Amsterdam. I've had the bagels and they're, they're so bad. See? They're terrible, man. Yeah. I told you. <laughs> I think that's more of an issue with, with Dutch people. <laughs> Their ability to bake good bagels than it is an issue with the category itself. Innovation Matters is a production of Lux Research, the leading sustainable innovation research and advisory firm. You can follow this podcast on Apple Music, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you want more, check out www.luxresearchinc.com slash blog for all of the latest news, opinions, and articles.